0: If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the ninth chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel. It's page 633 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. We're going to begin reading, or I'm going to read in just a moment in verse 20. If you're new, we've been working through Daniel verse by verse uh, since last fall. We took a Christmas uh, time out, things of that nature. But the reason why we're here this morning is this is where we should be. Verse 20, and I'm going to read it to the end of the chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel... I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy... And to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Anointed One, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty two sevens, the Anointed One will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put in end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out. On him, Okay, may God grant us understanding of his word this morning. And let's pray and seek the help that we need. Father, your love is better than life. It is our highest privilege to come in like this and to make much of you in song, to call out to you in prayer, and to humble ourselves now under the ministry of your word. And so we would ask for your mercy. We want the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We recognize our inability, our our great need God our weakness so that you can come in power and make much of yourself and that is our hope and that is our plea and we ask this for Jesus sake amen so two weeks ago we learned that this prayer to God of Daniel was set in motion by the word of God read by Daniel as verse 2 told us Daniel was reading from the book of Jeremiah And in it, he discovered that God's penalty on God's people for their constant refusal to obey God's law and honor God's covenant was 70 years of exile. So having realized this was the sin which had given rise to the destruction of the city and the destruction of the temple, and now Daniel realizing the 70 years was drawing to a close... Daniel, if you would, with his Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, he understands the times, and he was driven to pray for the exile to end. Notice he was driven to pray. He wasn't driven to get a bunch of people together and maybe make war, but no, let's get together. He prayed for the exile to end. And in that prayer, we see a foreshadowing of the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ where Jesus, just like the Holy Spirit, is continuously pleading on our behalf before the Father. He's doing it right now, and he's been doing it since he entered into heaven. I think it was Martin Murray McShane who had a quote that said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But distance makes no difference, does it? Christ is praying. Therefore, Daniel, recognizing the greatness of God, the mercy of God, and certainly the truth of God, he begins to confess his sins and the sins of his people, and he pleads with God and asking God to keep his promise and to forgive their sin and restore them out of this exile, which is clear in the text itself, but it's doubly clear in the end. Isn't it? Verse 18, you see it there? We do not make request of you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy, And we should remind ourselves again. Why does the Christian end their prayer in Christ's name or uh, for Jesus' sake? It is not a political statement, is it? We're not making a political statement. And we're not saying like, alakazam. No. When we say, in Christ's name or for Christ's sake, what we are saying is that we acknowledge the right that in our sin, we forfeited our right to be heard by God. And it is only in Christ that we can make an appeal. In other words... God does not hear and give answer to our prayer because of our righteousness, but ultimately because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that takes us then to verse 19, and in short, Daniel says, God, this whole prayer is about the honor of your name, right? Your name, God, your city, your temple, God. And so what we find is this 80-plus-year-old Daniel is deeply jealous for the glory of God, and he actively pursues this glory on his knees. And we need to remember that. Now, many of us might confess that after the hearing of the sermon a couple of weeks ago, we may say, you know what, I don't honestly pray like that. Usually, my confession is like this much, and my petitions are like that much, and most of the time, my personal well-being is what drives the whole thing. And even as a church, we should be humble enough to recognize in our public prayers, the confession of sin either plays a minor part or no real part at all. But Daniel helps us, doesn't he? Because God's word to us is very, very clear in this prayer. And even though so much of contemporary life would pull us away from these things, you know, always pointing at the other people or the really, really bad ones, voices from the past, They remind us that when the Christian prays, the Christian has a daily need for daily repentance. The Puritan say it like this. This is J.I. Packer. Christian maturity is as a perpetual broken heartedness. Which, of course, I mean, it kind of seems out of sorts in the day that we live in, right? But really is it? Is it really out of sorts that we should have a perpetual broken heart before a holy God? I mean, if you ask me, hey, how does a Christian mature in any reasonable way? One of my three answers would be daily repentance. Because, quoting, a person is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. And this is me, the usual mood of our soul. That's what we are before God and nothing more. So we are never to be a condemning church. However, Daniel shows us that we are to be a confessing church, and part of our confession lies in the repentance of our, right? Our sins. That's the danger of holy huddles. Cuz in the holy huddles, we're the only great ones and everyone else outside the huddles bad. No. And I want you to think just how attractive that would be to the outsider who's just beginning to become aware of their sin, and they know they can't stop sinning. And they come into a place like this, where Christians are confessing their sins. Daniel's prayer is so rational to me, and I hope it is to you. Now, our first point this morning is urgency and immediacy, and you can see that the Urgency of Daniel's prayer, verse 20, was doubly matched by the immediacy of God's reply. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, verse 21, while I was still in prayer, here comes Gabriel, right? If you like, straight from central command with an answer. So I want you to notice, and I want you to be encouraged by this. It would almost seem that, well, it actually is that before a word is off of Daniel's tongue the answer to Daniel's prayer has begun, right? That's a good thing. Before a word is off his tongue, the answer has begun. And that serves to remind the Christian that God hears our prayers immediately. Now, he may not answer them immediately, but but we need to acknowledge that he acknowledged them immediately. Therefore, no Christian prayer is left unheard. I mean, what do we say to each other sometimes? Maybe to our spouse, right? You're not listening to me. Right, I know. (laughs) You must have known what I was thinking. (laughs) God's people need never, ever worry about that. Listen to your Bible, Isaiah 65, verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. So you have Daniel understanding God's sovereignty still understanding that that does not remove the need for prayer, but it actually heightens the need of prayer, so Daniel prays. And God then, true to his word, as he always is, sends Gabriel, the mighty one, straight from high command to give an answer. And this is the second time that Daniel and Gabriel would have met. The first time is in chapter 8. And we see verse 21b, He came to Daniel in swift flight. I don't want to belabor this, but I actually say this for our encouragement. There are times in our life when situations are just so difficult that we need help from God, and we need it quickly. And we say to God, at least I hope you say to God, God, please don't delay. And so here in this prayer, what do we find? We don't find that God's going to make Daniel wait a long, long time for the answer. But swiftly comes the help from heaven. That's our first point, immediacy, urgency. Second point, or second phrase, Gabriel is sent out to give, verse 22, Daniel, insight and understanding. Now, if you've been with us, you'll remember that way back in chapter 1, God gave Daniel by his grace insight and understanding. And so, what made Daniel Daniel was that, yes, he was a man of understanding, and yes, he was a man of insight, and he can interpret dreams and visions But God did that for him. God was the strength in that. So here we find that God determines to give Daniel more grace and more strength in this answer to his prayer. But, and I want you to look at this closely, even though Daniel has all those gifts, verse 23, last phrase, God still wants Daniel to think. This is what it says, therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. So here we see God's enabling, and Daniel's effort goes hand in hand, right? This is the, the mystery behind divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Daniel, I want you to think this through, and I want you to understand what's happening. Now, loved ones, this kind of thing happens many times in the Bible. Let me just give you two illustrations. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul tells the church there, discern or learn what pleases the Lord. In other words, I want you to think it out. And as life goes by, day by day, think out what pleases God. Paul to Timothy, to Timothy, he says, consider these things and the Lord will give you insight. Okay, question, who's supposed to consider? Who's supposed to think? Timothy, answer, or answer Timothy, question, who will give insight? Answer, the Lord. In other words, verse 23 is something like this. Daniel, I want you to think through the message. I want you to understand the vision because I've come to give you insight and understanding because you need it. So, if we had to summarize these few verses here, um, beginning around verse 21, 22, and so on, we could say something like this. Number one, Daniel, God hears you. Right? No worries there. Number two, Daniel, God has sent me. That's the significance of verse 22. I have now come out. Where has he come out from? Well, he's come from the presence of God, from the throne room of heaven. Daniel, God hears you. Daniel, I've been sent by God. And then the third thing, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. And the Hebrew word there translates, you are precious if you would, to God. And actually, some Bible translators translate that word or that phrase, love. So in essence, Daniel, Gabriel says, God loves you. Now, we need to think about that just for a moment. Daniel has just spent a long, long time telling God the great number of ways he and his people have sinned against him and the great number of ways they have broken their covenant with him. And yet God's response is, "Daniel, I really, really, really love you." And loved ones, that is true of every child of God. and I want you to listen carefully. that is true of every child of God, every person in Christ, no matter their age or their stage in life, no matter their race, their face. Their income, their stuff, their intellect, their body type, their personality, or their giftedness. Why do I say that? Because those are many of the things that we'd be tempted to say to God deep in here. You know, I don't think you love me as much as couple A over there. I mean, look at their spouse and look at their house and look at their stuff and their kids never do anything wrong. God really, really, really loves you. There's an old hymn that has the line, shake off your guilt and fears and rise with great rejoicing. Why? God really loves you. You may not feel loved, But the word of God is that you are loved. This past Wednesday in the youth room, we were doing a lesson. And part of the lesson came from Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And in that lesson, we learned that the normal ministry of the Holy Spirit is to pour God's love into our hearts. In fact, a literal translation of Romans 5, 5 would read something like, God has dumped his love, into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that is the normal ministry of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to jump through hoops. We don't need to, you know, cry out. It's the normal ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is to be enjoyed because of the gospel. Now, we need to get on to verse 24, don't we? In those terrifically difficult verses. I can't wait to get there. But let's leave this heading noticing the fact that Daniel's prayer, this is verse 21 at the end there, is at the time of the evening sacrifice. And that tells me something wonderful about Daniel. And it's this. The last time that Daniel had actually taken part of a evening sacrifice was when he was just a little kid preteen teen teen in Jerusalem. And that was a lifetime ago. He's 80 plus years. They live now in exile. They have no place to perform any of the evening sacrifices which mark their life. Yet in Daniel's mind, right? So 70 plus years removed from that. In his mind, it's three o'clock. And that used to be the time for evening sacrifice. So he marks his prayer life and what used to take place in the Old Covenant in Jerusalem. One of my commentators says, you can take Daniel out of Jerusalem, but you can't take Jerusalem out of Daniel. So loved ones, his life, lived in exile, was still being calibrated by the things of God. And so when, when the smoke would come out of the temple at the time of the evening sacrifice, it was a reminder to Daniel and it was a reminder to everyone there that God does accept sinful people but only on the basis of a sacrifice offered on their behalf. You understand that? That's why this is important. Yes, God accepts you, but not because of you, but because of the sacrifice that we put before God. In the Old Testament, it was animals, and the new, it was a person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so somewhere in Daniel's core, he remembered that, and he calibrated his life in light of that, these are the things, if you would, these are the convictions that will hold to, you, and I will mark my life under its banner. If you think about it, it's one of the reasons why church bells used to be church bells, because the bells would ring and the people would know it was the call to worship. Everything else set aside, everything else stops. I calibrate my life to the things of God. Isaiah 66 and 2. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and that's remorseful, regretful in spirit, and who tremble at my word. That's Daniel. Humble, remorseful, regretful, and he trembled at God's word. So much so that when he closed Jeremiah, he got on his knees. First phrase, urgency and immediacy. Second, insight and understanding. Now, in these next four verses given to Daniel by Gabriel, we have some some really rough territory, don't we? In fact, every Bible scholar that I read agreed that these were difficult verses. And frankly, it's the only thing that they agreed on. There are a number of different interpretations offered on these verses. One of the commentators said, the history of the exegesis or the interpretation of the 70 weeks is the dismal swamp of Old Testament study. And here we are on a Sunday morning and we're going to try to drain (laughs) the swamp. But it's really, really hard. So let's tackle this under three headings. Again, you'll see them in the worship folder. First thing I would like you to remember I want you to remember that way back in chapter 7 when we started going through apocalyptic literature, one of the things that we said was is that not all parts of the Bible are equally understandable. But all that is necessary for our salvation is made perfectly understandable in the Scripture. And I say that because there are an enormous number of interpreters, interpretations given here, and many of them are trusted and tested people, and they disagree with each other on these verses. And most of them are still friends. Now, why do I say that? Well, for some reason, when it comes to end times, and and especially verses like this, there are some who are no longer friends. Because they can't agree here. And so they break fellowship. So you have to ask yourself the question, Why would they do that? Why would they do that with so many different takes on this verse and so many different translations, even in just the Hebrew of this verse? Let me just say this right up front. I think it would be the height of pride to be dogmatic in verses 24 and following. Here's my reason. We are not dealing with foundational blocks of biblical theology. In other words, one could be wrong about the seventy sevens and what temple is the actual temple and who is the anointed one. Is the same way all the same through or and who is the who is this the wing thing and all that cup? You can still be wrong on those and still be orthodox, still be Christian. What was the great quote from Augustine? In essentials, unity; non-essentials, liberty; and everything, what love. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is not and should not be a platform for controversy. It is rather a cause for worship. And some people have turned the thing completely around. Jesus is coming. It's all true. Death has been defeated. Life without end is coming. I also want you to remember that this is a brief, obscure passage. And anytime you engage in something like this, you cannot remove yourself from basic rules of interpretation. One of those rules says this. We should understand and interpret what is unclear in the Bible always in light of what is clear and not the other way around. In other words, you don't take an obscure passage like what we have here. Then try to understand the whole book or the whole Bible for that matter with that little passage. You don't do that. But what you do do is you take the under, if you would, you, you, you place the translation under the overarching theme of the book within the framework of apocalyptic writings and how to understand that in the context of God's revelation, realizing that God is not speaking in code here. So, you know, if you're lucky enough to have the super secret code ring, then you can break the code or you can charge people $29.95 and you'll tell them how you broke the code You can just line up everything perfectly to the end with your big charts and your codes and all that kind of stuff. You can't do that here. This verse is not a foundational verse. And we need to remember that. Second thing is I want you to consider this. And what I want you to consider is that when Gabriel gave the message there in verses 24 and following, he offers no interpretation at all and neither does Daniel. Daniel is told to think, think it out, and understand, but both Gabriel and Daniel are silent. Now, why do I say that? Well, in chapter 2, with that vision, in chapter 7, with that vision, in chapter 8, with that vision, a vision is given, and interpretation follows suit. That does not happen here. So, what does that mean? Well, honestly, I'm not exactly sure. But Daniel was told to consider the vision, to think it out, and to understand it. And of course, we should as well. However, one of the conclusions that this man of God came to in his consideration was that no more information needed to be said than what was said. So if you're tracking with me, maybe, maybe since these four verses probably have the most uh, number of difficult interpretations than any four verses in Daniel, probably in the whole Bible, it is to me almost comical that the vision is given and Daniel chooses not to say a word after. Gabriel says what he says, and that's that. Daniel's thinking it through. He's given grace to do that, and after he's thinking it through, he says nothing. Now, do you think he's saying something to his reader in his silence? You know how I always kid about Dare to Be Daniel? What's Dare to Be Daniel? <laughs> Now that might not be like earth shattering to you, but when I thought that through it struck me with the force of electric shock. <laughs> so I had to tell you. Actually I felt obligated to tell you. Finally, what we need to know. Well what you we need to know is what I've already said that this is like a minefield. In the Hebrew, there are many difficulties. If you're using NIV translation, you'll see it there. There are so many footnotes that there are at least nine different readings that could be read of these verses. And according to which uh, position a person takes, might be the way they lean towards accepting the translation. How they bend, if you would. For example, verse 24b, to anoint the Holy One. Or is it the Holy Place? If you look at the text note there in the NIV, it gives you both. Which one is it? The word can be translated both ways. Or as you go on there, is it weeks of days or weeks of years? And the anointed one, is it Cyrus, is it Ezra, Uh, Ezra or Artaxerxes? So just let me say this, God give us humility, God give us caution, and every one of us in this room reserve the right to change our minds on this. And so you should accept that liberty. Okay. Okay. Now we need someone to pull the fire alarm so we can get out of here. No, i kidding. Verse 24, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place or person, depending, again, on how you, you read that. So remember the context. The context is Daniel is praying. The prayer is essentially, oh God, how long? Right? How long before we return home from our exile? And in God's answer, you get this sense that God is telling Daniel, Daniel, listen, your understanding is way too small. You're only in thinking of terms of your 70 years. I ain't God. I'm thinking way past that. Because God's purposes for God's people will not end when the exile ends. God has a lot more to do. So when you look at verse 24 and you see the six things there, right? Transgressions will be finished, sins will be brought to an end, and so on. Most people reading this, with just a little bit of Bible in them, would say something like, you know what? That sounds a whole lot like what Jesus did. And most interpreters do say that. However, here comes the question. When has he done it? And is he actually finished with these six things? So, okay, most say this is Jesus in verse 24. However, when you get to that point... There are, there are many different interpretations, but here is at least three, okay, that are given. Some say that this whole section, verses 24 and following, is completed in the coming of Christ, in his death and resurrection and ascension, and then followed by the events of 70 A.D. You remember when Jerusalem was sacked, the temple destroyed, uh, uh, the Roman general Titus comes in there and just wrecks the whole place. So they say, therefore, these verses end here at 70 A.D., stop. Others say what we have here is more than just the historical event, but actually the final destruction of the Antichrist. That's verse 27. Last phrase, and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So they say the end is actually the end end. It's the end of the Antichrist, and they sometimes divided up into three sections before the coming of Christ, then what he's accomplished in his coming, and then that final period, this verse 27, uh, one seven, right? And then after that takes place the second coming. Still others say all of these verses here is not actually a summary of what's already happened, but it's actually a prophecy of what will happen. And that has to do with the place of Israel as a nation and the future reconstruction of the temple, which again will happen on a future date, they say, and all that will take place. In other words, verse 24 and following, that's not a summary. It's actually a prophecy, which is yet to happen. And this would be the dispensational view where the last seven years are to come The Antichrist is still to come, and there is this two sets of three and a half years which gives way to pre-tribulation and, I guess, mid and post and all those ideas. Now, there's a lot more, but those are the three main positions. Now, you might be saying to yourself, hopefully you're not, but you might be saying to yourself, why doesn't Joe just run the numbers? Right? You see them there. Verse 27. The seven sevens and the 62 sevens. Verse 27. Uh, one seven and, and the middle of the seven. Why don't you just get your calculator out. Run the numbers and everything will be fine. Well, th- let me just tell you. I did run the numbers in my study. And I ran my numbers against other numbers from other books. And those other books were pointing out that there was holes in everybody else's calculation of when this thing would all come to an end. And when it was actually happening. I mean I want to read you one. But I honestly don't want to take the time to read it. Because it's very very confusing. But I just need to tell you. That I had a lot of sources. Very old. Very new. And depending on their tribe. They could find holes. In others interpretation. When they ran the numbers. Now I'm not saying it's wrong. To run the numbers. Others do. But I'm not saying that. But I am asking you this question. Do you think Daniel would have done this kind of thing? And do you think his numbers would have been good? I just have trouble thinking that happened. So let me just say this as we get ready to close. Let me say, without trying to untie you to any position that you might have here, let's just say what is plain. We need to go back to the prayer of Daniel to understand the verses. Daniel in verse 24 hears God's reply to the first part of his prayer, right? The first part of his prayer was what? The confession of their sins and the need for forgiveness. Look at verse 24. There's your answer. It affects as your sins will be done away with. They will come to an end. The end of sin will come and the punishment that it calls for, right? That's verse 24, Then in the remaining part of Daniel's prayer, Daniel hears God's answer to the second part. And you can see that in verses 25 and following. Because in the second part of Daniel's prayer, what was the issue? God, your name. God, your city. God, your temple. God, your your people. Right? God, you did it in the Exodus. That was verse 16. No, God, please do it in the exile. In the Exodus, after you did what you did, the whole world knew about your great power. Now God do it in the exile. So God's reply in verses 25 to 27 is, "Okay, Daniel, listen carefully. I want you to get past the exile. I want you to get it past go past years, get past decades, even potentially millennia, Daniel. And I want you to see what I'm trying to say to you. And what I'm trying to say to you in all that stuff is humans don't have control of history. God does. And that's the main and plain thing. God will restore the honor of his name. God will act on behalf of his people. There will be an end to sin ultimately, and evil and everything which troubles God's people. Rest assured, God is in control. The patterns of history belong to God. Human history is not in the hands of the Antichrist, whoever he is, but it's in the hands of God. Much will happen, verse 25, to God's people and God's temple, which Daniel would never be able to fully understand, and we might not as well. But here's our confidence. Be confident in the end, verse 26, which God has decreed. And in that end, all evil and all evil people and the he of verse 27, if it's the Antichrist, they're going to be put down and they're going to be destroyed because God's wrath on sin, you see it there, will be poured out on him and all who follow him and then when that happens then then God's name will be hallowed right then God's name will be hallowed so just let me say this in our context in our culture with these things we are so preoccupied with the wind but here the what is just as important as the wind the wind's important I'll give you that but the what is just important. So you see, Daniel is given comfort here. And he's given assurance by God because he has a God who acts and who rules. And who's overall. And if you would allow me to, isn't ultimately the answer to verse 24, isn't the answer here essentially to everything that, every question that can be answered here is, is Jesus? Who's going to put an end to sin? Ultimately did, what did Jesus on the cross? Who will atone for wickedness? Jesus on the cross. Who will bring in everlasting righteousness? Jesus on the cross. So, so Daniel was crying, how long, God? Right? How long, oh God? And the healthy Christian cries the same thing. You see, when I got to the end of the sermon, I got worried. And this is my worry. I worry sometimes. Is that when we think about the world, as long as everything is going great in our world, then we don't think outside our world. And if we don't think outside our world, then we really don't know how broken the world is. And if we really don't know how broken the world is, we probably won't cry out, how long, oh God, how long? When is this going to end? The wickedness and the evil and the wretchedness of this world. When is it going to be shut down? Thank you, Jesus, for the answer in Revelation 1.18. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. And I am coming soon. And since Jesus spoke those words in Revelation, what was the reply and has been the reply, reply of the church for now two millennia? Yes, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. Amen. Thanks for your attention. Let's bow together and pray. Father, you do rule the world. You are sovereign over the affairs of time and of chance. And we know that when we become captivated by the allurements of this world, eternal life and the glory of Christ fade from our view. And in this, God, he does not hold the estimation that he should. And if this is true of us, Father, please forgive us. The end will soon come for all of us in this room. It may be one way or it may be another, but the end will come. And our plea is that we'll be found in Christ. And if we're found in Christ, no matter how the end comes, everything will be fine. We believe this, Father. Please help us in our unbelief. May you show mercy to your people this morning, God, and may the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ rest on the remainder of their Lord's day. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.